My name is Cheong Tie Chi. Growing up in a fairly conservative Asian family, talking about death would have my mum going like Choi. So to her, it's an ominous topic that just screams taboo. My full name is Kok Chun Yen. When talking about death, I've always thought of it as an abstract concept. Uh, I'm Lim Chu Xian. Talking about death actually makes me feel centered, grounded almost. Kind of puts things into perspective. I'd ask these medical students to tell me what they think about death. And like them, I squirm uncomfortably at the thought. We think that talking about death is to, 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 to somehow speed this thing or wish, some, wish the worst upon someone. That's Lalit Krishna, a palliative care doctor at the National Cancer Centre Singapore. Talking about death is to, to welcome death to your door. I'm Nicole Lim, and in this episode of Medicus the Podcast, we're taking a look at that door that awaits at the end of all our lives. And despite the fact that most of us don't like talking about it, we still have a very specific opinion on what a good death means to us. So there was one patient, we were talking about death and dying, and he told me, uh, I want to die aged 78, killed by a jealous lover. What most of my patients say is that uh, they'd like to die in a manner where their dignity was maintained, they were pain-free and they were with family. At peace with my own values and also at peace with the values that belong to people whom I love. I believe that in order for a good death to occur, any medical intervention has to reduce the pain yet not impair my consciousness. Preferably, these interventions are conducted at home in the outpatient setting with a professional such as a nurse on standby to monitor the medications and my vitals. Likewise, any conflicts or troubles of the heart should be settled in order to obtain full closure. Um, how would I like to die? I suppose uh, knowing that I mattered. As for me, my image of a good death is one where I'm surrounded by my family and I can drift away at a time when I'm ready to do so. While demanding to die on my own terms may be a futile exercise, we can do things collectively as a society through policy and through individual choices to help us get the closure we're looking for. So let's start with the state of end-of-life care. A recent global ranking of countries conducted by the Lien Centre for Palliative Care at Duke NUS Medical School in Singapore found that when countries were ranked by the factors that mattered the most to people at the end of their lives, few countries offered a good place to die. And so I asked the centre's executive director and the senior author of the report, health economist Eric Finkelstein, to tell me a bit more about what he found. Well, what I've come down on is that in the developed world, we tend to mistreat and overtreat people. And in the developing world, we tend to mistreat and undertreat. And by mistreating, you mean? People tend to die in pain, not at their place of choice, with significant regret. Uh, lots of reasons to think that we're not doing the, uh, you know, we're, we're doing somewhat of a disservice to patients and families, you know, the way we treat people with life-limiting conditions. So it's really no surprise that being free from pain was one of the most important factors but then there were some surprises, like the quality of life-extending treatments was not so different than being treated kindly, being treated in a, in a clean and safe environment, having care that was well-coordinated, 
having non-medical concerns addressed. So there, you know, pain management and, and having uh, sort of distress concerns was really important. But uh, beyond that, you know, lots of other things mattered. It wasn't just, I want to live as long as possible, which I think is what the health system tends to, to focus most on. Modern medicine has scrubbed out countless causes of death, so much so that even doctors, who were once more used to relieving suffering than to cure a disease, have become, become well, quite terrible at dealing with it. And some medics even look at it uh, as, um, as death being optional, right? We can keep them alive, we can put them in tubes, and we can do this and that. We can ward off death, well, at least try for a bit longer. And Lalit's assessment is also reflected in the recently released report by the Lancet Commission on the Value of Death, a three-year-long mammoth effort that brought together top experts in the field from around the world, including Eric, which found that overtreatment is a widespread issue. Overtreatment is, is not unique to end-of-life care. And what we've shown in, in several studies, including our COMPAS cohort study in Singapore and another study called SHAPE, where we we look at advanced cancer patients and we ask them questions about their prognoses, how long they're expected to live, do they think they'll do better than the average patient. And they found that many patients believed that they could outperform the data and those who had more hope were more likely to accept treatments because... Hope is really hope for a cure, hope for survival. And, you know, you hope for it so bad that you're very willing to take, you know, low-risk uh, treatments and give it a go. Uh, the problem is many of those treatments come with unwanted side effects uh, and don't deliver what individuals hope. But in the end, there's lots of regret. So we find ourselves caught up in the system that is geared to deliver curative and life-extending treatments that thrives on our hope. A hope for a good physical outcome, for more time in this body. But the truth is there's always a time when that option is no longer on the table, but we're, we're slow to recognize it in many cases. And we've become so focused on seeing death for something that is exclusively determined on the battlefield of the human body that we forget about the death of the soul, of the meaning of life, of dignity, says Lalit. We talk so bravely about um, the wish to respect autonomy, the wish to respect the patient's choice. But we never talk about everything for, that would have allowed us to, to really respect their wishes. It's partly societal. It's partly educational amongst the, the, the healthcare professionals. It's partly not knowing um, when to bring it up. A hundred years ago, death was a community ritual, something that happened in full view of the living. You know, they, they accept it as part of life instead of something to be hidden and shunned and avoided. And so I think that's the hope of the, of the commission. And, and, you know, I see value in that for sure. So while researchers like Eric are generating data to help policymakers improve the system, what can and should we do to be ready when our time comes? How do you look at death? I try my best not to. Uh, exactly. So that's the point, isn't it? It's the part of you that you don't look at. It's the shadow. The day I spoke to Lalit for this podcast was the 10th anniversary of his dad's death. And so I asked him, the son of a doctor, whether his father had had the death he had wanted. So there were two parts to, to his wish. The first part uh, was that he wanted to go and meet his maker 
without suffering. Um, so it, what he meant initially was was physical suffering. Um, he he was very at peace with I think his uh, his spiritual side of things. Um, but that changed uh, that that wish. Uh, and so what happened was that um, when when he found out that my wife was pregnant, uh, his 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 final wish was to be around to see his first grandchild. And did he get his wish? Uh, Dad died uh, one month before his grandson was born. So that's the hard part. I I spoke to my dad about death and dying. Um, I think uh, we were sitting in the porch watching the sunset. Um, it was easy then. He was ready, I was ready. I, I suppose um, from a personal perspective, it's... And on the receiving end of that conversation, you've got to hold your tongue because you, you sometimes it gets overwhelming. Sometimes it's hard not to cry. Um, it's okay to cry. Um, it's okay to let that person know that you're vulnerable and, and that you're hurting. But just as important, they know that you they need to know that you're going to be okay. It's a two-way thing, and it's it's something that you need to start now. But starting now doesn't mean sending out invitations to your loved ones for a dinner dialogue about death and dying. It has to be an ongoing conversation. It has to be an honest conversation. See, the problem is that often we don't want to say, talk about the things that we want to talk about because we're worried about how the other person might feel. We're worried about upsetting the ones we love, encountering reactions like Jie Chi's mums, of wanting to swat that topic away like a fly because we feel that we're betraying our loved ones by giving up hope for more life, even though we know we can't live forever. So how then can we accept death without having to give up hope? It, it's being honest about it. It's building that, that hope in that even if I can't get better, I hope that I will die in a way that matters or that I am comfortable. I will hope that I can find peace in where I am right now. I hope that I can bring my family to a point where they can accept life without me. And that's another key point about dying, isn't it? It's just as much about the family, those left behind and their grief. My dad was one of the few family members with my aunt when she took her last breath. And he told us that the moment when her lungs stopped their rasping, feeble struggle to take in more air, the silence that was left behind was the loudest sound that he would remember for a lifetime. It made me realize that when we grieve over the loss of a loved one, it initially revolves around the last moments before we eventually recall the good times that come before. And because of that, I believe that a good death is more important for the ones left behind than the one leaving. There is this analogy on grief which I thought was perfect when I first heard it. 
So it describes grief as a box with a ball in it and a button on one wall that causes pain when it's hit by the ball. And at the start, the ball is large and it fills the room. Rattling around the box just hits the pain button again and again. But over time, the ball becomes smaller and hits the button less. For most of us, the ball never really goes away. It might hit less frequently and hopefully less painfully, with more time for us to recover between each hit. The ball is all the bigger in those moments when death comes unexpectedly or when we've had no time to talk about it to each other. And despite the inevitability of death, we're remarkably good at thinking that it doesn't apply to us, that it's not yet our time. Death is such a pervasive human experience and all of us will come to experience it. Yet, despite that, why is it so hard to talk about? Unlike Jiechi, I like to put off thinking about my own end. After all, I have so much left to live for. But rather than seeing life and death as two sides of the same coin, maybe it's time to reframe how I view death. I'm standing upon the seashore, a ship at my side. She spreads her white sails to the moving breeze and starts for the blue ocean. She is an object of beauty and strength. I stand and watch her until, at length, she hangs like a speck of white cloud just where the sea and sky come to mingle with each other. Then someone at my side says, there, she is gone. So it's how you look at death. If you look at death um, in a purely negative perspective where there's nothing more, then hope is hard to find. But it's not impossible because maybe part of that conversation is priming the other person getting them ready to say, I'm ready for this conversation and maybe I'm going to tell you what I want. And no, maybe you're not ready, but I'm going to help you get ready. And in getting ready, can we make room to give both life and death the space they need? Just at the moment when someone says, there, she's gone. There are other eyes watching her coming and other voices ready to take up the glad shout, here she comes, and that is dying. For patients to talk about death and dying is also part of their journey. It's, it's making them have a chance to say sorry or make amends or reflect. It gives them a chance to tell you what's important. Who wouldn't want a chance to gain some measure of control over how we and those around us experience death? Even if control over what is happening and when it's happening is often beyond our means. It's ironic. My father actually said, you know, um, I am thankful to one thing that the cancer has given me. It's given me time to prepare. While death lies outside our control, what we can do is to talk about it. Help each other and ourselves understand what matters to us and what would matter to us when we reach end of life. My candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. But ah, my foes and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. This was Medicus the Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, check out our other ones and subscribe to our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for more stories from Duke NUS, head to www.duke-nus.edu.sg forward slash medicus. 
Thanks to my interviewees, Jong Chechi, Eric Finkelstein, Chun Yen, Lale Krishna, and Lim Chu Sien. The piano was played by Juno Young, and Juno and Finn Young recited poems by Henrik van Dijk and Edna St. Vincent Millay, respectively. This podcast was produced by Nicole Lim for Medicus, a Duke NUS publication.